This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about the art, literature, music and other cultural forms and experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Philippe Perreno, a master of exhibition making. Philippe was born in 1964 in Iran in Algeria, but grew up in Grenoble in France. He graduated from the École des Beaux-Arts there in 1988 and then went on to study at the Palais de Tokyo in Paris. Ever since he emerged in the 1990s, Philippe has used the spaces he shows in and the immediate environment around them as an active presence in his work. Often these actions are triggered by hidden environmental forces that Philippe harnesses as data to orchestrate his shows. This was perhaps most dramatically realised when he took on the annual commission for the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern in London in 2016. There, while inflatable fish floated around the space, making the Turbine Hall feel like a vast artificial aquarium, the scenario of the exhibition was triggered by yeast, which was growing in a room at the end of the space. The yeast was connected to a weather station on the roof of the building, and the data it captured, relating to wind, light and heat, was transmitted to a bioreactor controlling how the yeast was fed. This then dictated the yeast's patterns of movement, and that affected the appearance of the various elements of the show. The lights within the space would seem to perform a dance. Speakers and screens descended from the turbine hall ceiling, and different films would then be shown. They included Anywhen, in which the ventriloquist Nina Conti performed a text written by the artist alongside beautiful sequences of a cuttlefish with its changing, pulsing colours. Crucial to the work was whose voice Conti was speaking. Was it her own? Was it the cuttlefish's? or the turbine hall itself, which Philippe had turned into a living organism. In that turbine hall installation, there was a work he'd made with the British artist Liam Gillick, and Philippe is a serial collaborator. He's made work with numerous artists, including his French peers Dominique gonzalez Fuerster, who he studied with in Grenoble, and Pierre Huyg, with whom he bought the copyright to a manga character named Anne Lee, and then shared her with a number of artists as part of a project called No Ghost, Just a Shell. He's also worked with a former guest on this podcast, Tino Segal, and perhaps most famously, he worked with Douglas Gordon on the film Zidane, a 21st century portrait, where the French football star was filmed on multiple cameras for the entire duration of a game he was playing for Real Madrid. It's a truly spellbinding film. That group of artists featured together in numerous exhibitions and were regarded as reflecting a tendency in contemporary art that the curator Nicolas Bourriot theorised as relational aesthetics, which he described as a set of artistic practices which take as their theoretical and practical point of departure the whole of human relations and their social context, rather than an independent and private space. Philippe is making a new work to coincide with October's major Goya exhibition at the Bayla Foundation in Basel, in which he's documented the Spanish master's dramatic late black paintings, now in the Prado, for his latest work in film. And here too, the idea of the construction of space and of immersive experience are uppermost in his thoughts. A consistent element of Philippe's work is a playfulness with constructions of reality. Born from a profound interest in fiction and science fiction, the idea of the automaton and artificial intelligence. Always, though, we experience this in relation to human movement and bodily presence within the exhibition space. 
From Philippe's earliest works, reality and unreality have preoccupied him. One of his earliest pieces was even called No More Reality. So I began our conversation by asking him, why are perceptions of reality and its construction so vital to his work? Yeah, it's true. The first work I did was called uh, No More Reality. It was in the schoolyard of a primary school in Nice when I um, played with a sort of a workshop kind of with some kids in the school in the summer and um, tried to explain what was a demonstration and the meaning of it. Demonstration has a sort of like two meanings in, uh, in French called manifestation, you say. So you demonstrate, like you do, like demonstrate for a protest, but also you manifest, you know, which is exactly what it says in English, manifestation. So it's something that occurs, right, comes out from nothing. So there was this double aspect of it. And at the time, that was in 1991, two, I don't remember, but it was at a time where, where Jaron Lanier was, uh, or developed um, the VPL company with the first data gloves and glasses, you know, to explore... To go through what he uh, coined as being like the virtual reality. The words come from Soyo, but it was kind of like you applied it to what we know now being like the VR world. So that was the sort of like the context in which that work was done. So I talked to the kid about uh, manifestation and demonstration, and also maybe the meaning of being an artist, and said you can also build your own kind of like sets, you know, of, uh, and build your own reality, so to speak, you know. So, of course, there are things which are given, but then there are things you can build up. And all these things were like my, you know, understanding of from what Philip K. Dick to Timothy Leary to some ideas that was discussed at the time and rediscussed at the time when John Lanier was, uh, came out with the VR and this uh, beautiful invention that he had as a sort of like a set to enter into a, a post-symbolic world, right? A, a thing where you don't have to, come with a word to name something, but you can be the word or you can be the thing. So it was all these sort of like uh, ideas, you know, that was in my mind at the time. And um, that came to a, this sort of renegotiation with the real, so to speak, you know. And so it's too sort of neat or in fact quite wrong to say it's like a manifesto. Mm-hmm. But that that concern with reality has continued to be something that you've dwelt upon and pondered throughout your work, right? Yeah, there's beings and there's a set of things, you know, as we know now with uh, what you call like the non-human, you know, which is there. But even that is a construction. So everything is constructed in a way, you know. And, uh, and because we live as human in a cultural world and a social world, you know, is by definition a construction. And I do believe that, um, to go back to this early demonstration with the kids, that you can, in fact, declare, oppose, you know, determine the set of construction that uh, you will determine as being your reality, you know. And all that meaning that it's always a negotiation between you and the others. And tell me about the first time where you thought of making exhibitions the kind of object or making the exhibition space a kind of living thing Mm -hmm. and the idea of the exhibition being the sort of act of creation. You see, even when I started just after the art school, the first thing that I did was to work with uh, all the young artists like me, and among them was uh, Dominique Gonzalez Forces, which is still somebody I work with and I talk to uh, on a daily basis, you know. But there were some of the artists in the 
in the, around me, like Pierre Joseph, or Bernard Joseph, sort of in the different people I used to work and spend a lot of time with. And we all kind of like, you know, this declared ourselves being sort of like a artist under the condition of uh, exhibition making. So you will discuss the terms of uh, appearance or, you know, of, of our work within our conversation. And then uh, we'll come out with an exhibition called um, Hyper Hyper or Ozone. And this will be not the, the name of the group of artists, but more this exhibition that will be entitled like that. And within that group exhibition, to speak, created by uh, us, five or six of us, then there will be the work that I will do inside. So, you know, it was not my work in the gallery space. It was my, my work in dialogue with something else. So it was already there, you know, and that was like lasted for a while. And after that, it became, uh, in a way, something that I really... Um, I believed in that uh, that I had to carry on um, with this conversation idea, and I spent I did spend a lot of time in making only working collaborations, you know, and that was incredibly um, beautiful time. In a way, I extended by that the good time that I had in school, you know, <laughs> like never ending <laughs> the conversation. So so works were always like defined by uh, by words and always open to uh, changes, you know, and things will always uh, appear there like that and appear there differently, you know. So I started to have a sort of like a, a, a sort of a animistic relation to uh, the things that I was doing. And that on, the, on one side, and then of course, the fact that I was like uh, all the artists in my generation, much more inclined to work with time-based objects, you know, rather than to uh, define ourselves in a spatial context, you know. Although, of course, it was both, but uh, I mean, I started to use a camera, not because I wanted to make film, but I wanted to measure uh, an object in time. So there was this relation to time and the fact that things were, and questioning the moment when the thing that I will try to do within that kind of like conversation will appear and disappear. So um, from the beginning on, there was this sort of, uh, things going on, you know, between us, I guess, you know. The first big show that I had was at Musée d'Art Moderne, La Ville de Paris. That was 2002, I think. And that was a, a show that I did as a curator. That was Antoine Sobris, but there was also Jaron Lanier that came from New York to work on the show as sort of a collaborator on it. I asked him to come because I was, you know, as we just talked before, fascinated by the work, but also as a composer and also because of the... It's an attempt, let's say, to say that we can produce computers that will be more dealing with a, with a musician rather than to deal with the software, you know, that it's between you and the user. So he has sort of like an anthropic kind of like relation to the computer. And I kind of like this, this idea that the computer is getting better because the user gets better using it. So I thought, can we think about a way to program those kind of like dynamic into space? through uh, something which is not like given by, you know, by software. So we talked about that uh, for a couple of weeks. And, um, and that was the first time in a way I thought about uh, program, programming an exhibition. So this idea of programming an exhibition, you've talked about it in, in different ways, but often you talk about it in, in terms of almost like a musical score. Mm -hmm. but, but I wonder if it's, is it a looping score or a generative score in a sense, so that it consistently changes? Yeah, it's always been generative. Also, uh, at the beginning, it was much more empirical than uh, maybe the tools that I'm using now. Also, 
There is, of course, some mathematical correlation, but there's not really algorithm really at work, you know? I mean, I use it maybe once or twice, really. Otherwise, uh, what I use uh, most of the time is uh, data that I collect from uh, either a microphone placed outside or inside the space or from uh, input that I get from, you know, the sun position or, you know, things which are in a way uh, related to the space in which, uh, in which the works appears, you know? So this, in a way, of course, because the position is never the same or because the atmospheric pressure is never the same, you know, that in a way uh, launch or trigger a series of events that will never repeat themselves, you know. So it's uh, to try to, to avoid that sort of uh, a looping, you know. Uh, um, yeah. And of course, then, then you have this idea, like Intake Modern at the mm-hmm. Turbine Hall, there was the yeast, these, yeah. the, these tiny microorganisms that were dictating the sort of scenario that... that occurred in this vast space. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. Well, of course, there was this idea of having a vanishing point, you know, when you come in and you have this sort of like perspective at the end where, where the yeast and the lab was located. So, so the feeling that you can walk through all this distance and then between the moment you enter Tate and the moment you go to the end of the turbine hole, then you go through this series of events that have been triggered by microorganisms, you know, that will send things that you can't sense, you know. So the entire space became, in a way, sentient to things that you can't perceive, you know. It came out from that kind of like reading, because it's a dead end. You end up to uh, the space where before you had all these machines that now doesn't work. So I replaced those machines by its microorganism linked to a bioreactor that will produce them and trigger back all these events, you know, into the space, yeah. And then, in a sense, what you're doing is is automating buildings or automating architecture yeah, right yeah. and of course you've literally worked with automatons you filmed the automaton for the writer yeah it's true <laughs> do you see that relationship as a linear one if you like is it, you know does your interest in animating the inanimate relate directly to the idea of the automaton yes the automaton is a figure that i use it goes back to a, even you could say cinema or even before you know for example Leibniz talked about like automation in the way that you can chain a thought to another in a sort of like automatic way you know so it was for me a, a, a way to to take the automaton being to say okay it's a bit like a pre-form of cinema you know how do one uh, in that case, not image, but in event, although it's a bit the same, you know, can't uh, produce another one, you know, and then another one. So it was a, a chain of a reaction, you know, that thing produce another, and produce another. So it's a bit like when you start a conversation or discussion or, or you know, a sentence. So it's a, it's a way also to uh, not totally define, you know, the work. You have to go through the entire process until you know you find out what it was you know it's a bit like reading when you read a book or anything that in a way take place in time and space rather than to only taking place uh, in a, in a space yeah Let's move on to the questions we ask all our guests. So who was the first artist whose work you loved? I will definitely go for Pasolini. The poems, I guess. Maybe even the film Agatone. Would be more movie or kind of like on that kind of like realm. Visual art a bit later, maybe, you know. Apart from if you say, okay, we can experience with Dali, yes. But yeah, I didn't really understand what it was, really. Apart from if it looked like a really cold image. But that's interesting is that because one of the things that you've done is very much make 
films which which operate within the realms of the of the of the exhibition space or the gallery yeah the thing when i will say i will say Pasolini maybe because it's a, maybe because it was i was fascinated by Pasolini as a, as an artist being able to write poem to uh, write prose you know to uh, appear as sort of like a citizen, whatever, so, so, uh, and engage into a political discourse at the time, and also producing movies. So there was this sort of like idea that he could be was able to write in multi dimensions, you know, and I was fascinated by that. And, and of course, like your your young years, you were in Grenoble, mm-hmm. in, which was a sort was, was a, a very particular set of conditions yes. right, in in Grenoble, which created the kind of educational structure in which yeah. somebody like you from a working class background could really thrive. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So I had access really, really early, early on to the Cinémathèque, you know, where film from Mizuguchi to have you know was screened and commented by people like Jean Doucher. So I was exposed young, you know, when you're sixteen, seventeen, you know, but and an age was really important to understand or to access the things that otherwise would be really hard to access to. So that was the, the door, you know, way to, to enter at the time, I was also quite, um, I'm sure today, still uh, there and uh, operating the, the Maison de la Culture, you know, uh, that was at the time really uh, extremely active. So exposing also uh, to uh, you know, dance, you know, and to, uh, to uh, stuff that was also uh, otherwise really complicated to get, to get access to from, you know, the where, where I grew up, you know, where not much stuff happening, you know. And there was also also uh, Le Magasin, which was yeah, and, and the the crucial influence of Jacques Guillot. Can yeah. you say something about what what was so crucial about uh, about Guillot's attitude, his his programming, etc.? Uh, what was fantastic with uh, Jacques Guillot is that we were really uh, young. We were able not only to be uh, well to work and to make a bit of money to work as a, in the magasin, but to, to do everything, meaning to uh, install works, to repaint the wall, to disinstall the work, you know to tour the, the people coming into the, uh, to the, the art centre. So we were really exposed to the entire life, you know, in a way, of, the, of this institution, you know, and, um, and had a chance to meet a lot of artists who come and do stuff, you know, there. So it, it has a tremendous influence on, on, uh, on me, yeah, absolutely. Uh, which historical artist do you turn to the most today? I spent a lot of time recently talking to uh, Daniel Buren, which I'm not sure as you, how far you can go through history, <laughs> but it's uh, <laughs> yeah. a contemporary. He's historical and contemporary. Yeah, contemporary. <laughs> it depends. Of, I mean, I have a tendency also to, uh, for like right now, for example, I spend time looking at Goya, you know, but uh, so, but I, I used to relate to things which I need for, for the work while, while I'm doing something. So I'm looking at Goya right now. I'm also going back to some kind of... Uh, Joseph Conrad writing, so it's like depend of like uh, what you need for when you you know when you engage into something, right? I was thinking also Michael Asher recently. I've been looking at lo- a lot of his work recently for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know if you know about the work that he did. One of his rare thing or only piece of work that he did or sold to a collector, which was you know desperate to buy to buy something from Michael Asher, was not able to do any object. And finally, he came with a beautiful idea. Which is uh, it's worth saying it because it's not written anywhere, <laughs> and it's a, it's a collector was in a, you know Michael Asher lives in Los Angeles and the collector was from LA and the collector house was of course in a little property bordered by a wall, and after spending years thinking about something, he just proposed and did deplace uh, the wall from the depth of the wall inside the property. So a collector will gain in object but lose in space, right? And the, the people around will gain more space and lose an object. And I thought it was a beautiful 
thing. So it made me really smile. Did the collector accept that proposal? Did it, yeah, ha- yeah, it happen? Yeah, it happened, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, let, let's talk about Goya, because you're making work which is directly responding to the black paintings, right? Uh, the black paintings was, uh, were painting on the, on the ha- in a house, you know, called La Quinta, so the, La Quinta mm-hmm. del Soldo, and it was mm-hmm. 14 paintings uh, painted on the two different floors. And uh, the paintings were really painted like uh, not like just r- roughly painted on the wall directly. It was not a fresco technique used, you know. And he uh, worked on them for a couple of years. And it was supposed to be the legacy and a really deep one to uh, his son and the grandson. And of course, the paintings, luckily enough, when the house were demolished, were saved, you know, when were not supposed to be saved because... Pisco Goya, who did fresco, uh, never used that technique to preserve, you know, those uh, 14 works. And uh, the paintings were detached from the house. The house was uh, turned down. And then the, the paintings now remained you know, in a gallery where they are all hung at the same level and, you know, exist as sort of like a, a series of uh, distinct um, objects. But the point is that uh, it was not done like that. It was done as... a uh, 14 visual works producing a space, you know, and the space is gone now, so the object remained, which is really often the case. And I thought it could be interesting to uh, try to reimagine the space in between the paintings. And of course, that with the coronavirus crisis took a bit more time than planned. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it was supposed to be doing something simple to do, and it became more and more complicated. So I did some uh, first before you go to Madrid, I had this vague idea. It would be interesting to have a sort of a, a motion that would be at the same uh, speed than the paintings themselves. So I tried to get some video uh, motion that will run, I mean, a camera that will run at uh, 500,000 frames per second and, uh, and even beyond. So I explore different uh, cameras like that to have this sort of like matter that will be at the same sort of speed, you know, like the paintings are made out. And so I had this stuff that I shot that was in New York two years ago, or a year more. And then last summer, um, winter, I went to um, shoot in the Prado. We tried to shoot uh, the painting without having never the frame. So getting really close to it, trying to lead them up with, uh, with candles, you know, to try to get the light reflection in them. And being close to them and going from one to another without really having to see the frame. So being immersed within the, the, the paintings and go within and with the editing, trying to uh, rebuild uh, a digitic space that was now uh, gone. So I didn't really start editing. I just looked at uh, recently at all the footage that I had hours of uh, footage. And it's interesting because I know if you know this film called uh, the Montreux d'Ombre in French, it's not a uh, German picture from the early cinema, where somebody going to a weird party and he show shadows, you know, with his hand, hand shadows, you know, and produce right. sort of a drama. It was an early film. So the Montreux Dome is called Showing Shadows, right? So a bit like, right. so I'm going to try to do something a bit like that. We can look at the paintings and look at things that you didn't really see or never get a chance to see because you can't go so close to the painting. So it's a, it's a way to um, show paintings in, different, in a different way, yeah. Rather than to right. show it in the space, I showed within the genetic space, which is an attempt. To, so we'll see. I, just, I didn't start the editing, so we'll see. I, don't, I have no idea what the sound will be, but um, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, obviously, because those paintings, as, as you're saying, mm-hmm. 
as they were originally created, were kind of created as an installation, effectively, weren't they? They were, as you say, they were not originally objects. They were created as a space. Exactly. And I found it quite fascinating, you know, to try to um, go back to this precise notion, you know. It was was painted in uh, 1818, you know, which is fascinating as well because it's a couple of years or a year or two after the first release of Frankenstein or Mary Shelley. And the year, for example, the year without summer, which was also around the same time, you know, the famous year where... The volcano uh, in Indonesia erupted, and then the the climate change, you know. And uh, so it's sort of like so this this idea that we lo- we live, what we have to go through uh, apocalyptic times, is not a new idea. And uh, Goya in the paintings is pretty much in touch with that, as was just uh, before Mary Shelley. So there is sort of like a sense of uh, pre-science fiction, you know, kind of something that comes also, which is also something that fascinates me to. Uh, yeah. As Neil Stephenson says many times, he says, when you write science fiction, not about like writing about the, in the future, but it's about writing about some event that had happened in another time. It can be a past or a future, it doesn't matter. But it's a, it's a game with time. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that, you know, altogether. The fact, as you said, that it's, it's already, in a way, an exhibition, the Black Painting series, you know, but the space is gone. And, uh, and also something about what we seem to be living or rediscover uh, today, which is like this notion of like uh, the end of time. <laughs> It's interesting that you mentioned Shelley because I know that it's sort of been a long term. It's an unrealized project mm-hmm. of yours, not to get all hands Ulrich on you, but but it's an unrealized project of yours that you wanted to do a film about. Yeah, about yeah, Shelley's and I'm still working right? on it. I'm still working on it. So uh, I've been thinking about for 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 a while now. In fact, I'm I'm starting again the process of writing it with uh, Adam Thierwell, and um, and we we'll see how it goes. But uh, the main idea around the on the, that project is that to do the film from the point of view of the monster, you know, and the monster who doesn't have a name, but is um, in chapter two extremely articulated. He speaks three different languages. He's vegan, <laughs> and no, he's, he's turning to see uh, to see the sensitivity that he has, you know, and the compassion that he has. So it's interesting to see his perspective when the cinema made out of uh, it. A sort of a cut out kind of like you know monstrous you know unable to talk brutal being, when in fact uh, on Mary Shelley's perspective it was quite the opposite. So to imagine today what could be the point of view of the monster is interesting because what is that monster if not as Mary Shelley says herself you know when she def- tried to define it a creature how can you imagine being to exist without being born. So that's sort of like the, the relation that we, it's a bit like what we try to, we're going to try to explore through that uh, picture, yeah, yeah. Normally at this point I ask which contemporary artist you most admire, but I thought we'd use this moment as a chance to talk about the contemporary artists that you work with, your, your regular collaborators. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to still have, since I started, uh, as you know, with Dominic gonzalez Forso, which is still somebody I, I, I talk to, or Pierre Wig, or Recruit Ravanija, or Liam Gillick, or Douglas Gordon, or, you know, and have uh, a still uh, a conversation with all these uh, artists. We don't talk about the same thing with everybody, you know, but it's still a really strong connection I have uh, with them. And in fact, one of the things that happened during that time we're going through was uh, maybe the most complicated thing for me was really precisely that, the lack of the thing that we used to do all the time, like that with Liam, we would meet all the time just because we had either a group show or like a reason to meet or to cross by. 
and end up starting a conversation with not reason to start one, but we had to. And so, and that kind of like missing in a way, no? So there's something a bit weird thing that uh, is happening. But uh, that and also with writers that we talked about, Adam. And so it's uh, it's an important part of uh, my studio practice, so to speak. Yeah. When I came to research this interview, I found really interesting to me I, I found myself conflating works of yours with works by Pierre yeah. and work by work by Dominique mm-hmm. because the thematics are the similar but mm-hmm. of course you have individual languages yeah. but but in a way even your individual works sometimes appear almost to be collaborations yeah. with those artists yeah. because because you're covering similar territories yeah but I think we also are different especially with Pierre now it's more interesting to find the different than you find to find the similarities you know and I think the grammar is all about that. There's a different level, of course. It's the visual grammar, what do you call it, the formal grammar. But there's something also in the aesthetic, which is like much more deep inside, you know. And um, so it depends on which level you want to take it, you know. You have connections with all these artists in different ways, you know. That's why maybe the conversations are different, you know. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to more than 40 cultural institutions through a single download, with new partners being added every month. Alongside guides to museums such as the Guggenheim in New York and the Serpentine in London, you can explore the life and work of the late collaborative duo Christo and Jean-Claude in a dedicated guide that's available in English and French. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you can explore the artist's projects by decade, watch archive footage of Christo and gain insights into Luc de Triomphe Wrapped, their final temporary project on view in Paris from the 18th of September until the 3rd of October. The guide contains practical information for visitors as well as the details of three related exhibitions and film screenings. For more content and to explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at bloombergconnects.org. It's also available to download from the App Store and Google Play. Do you have a studio as such? Yes. Because, and in your studio, do you have particular visual things? Do you have things pinned up on walls around you? Is it yes. a busy space? I have a studio uh, since uh, maybe 10 years or so. And I had for many for many years, until like two years ago, maybe a cephalopod in the studio, a, a cuttlefish, which was really complicated to uh, for a film I did. And so I live with, with them for a while. Right now I have orchids. That, so I like to go to you and spend something about uh, not myself, but <laughs> try to inquire in a sort of like really non-scientific way uh, about other beings. And uh, the orchids are interesting because I, I try to, uh, you know, to have a series, maybe uh, 20 or 30 of them, and uh, they scent at different times during the day, depending on which insects I want to attract. So I start to create sort of like a clock, you know, where you have smells during the during the year, which like change. And uh, so I'm 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 dealing with that. I have a drawing on the wall of uh, Richard Case, you know, the the comic book he worked with uh, Grant Morrison on the. Uh, oh, right. And there's a beautiful uh, drawing of uh, Dennis the Street in it. Yeah. So that's what something I'm um, with. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me about Danny the Street because obviously this is this has informed a body of work, and of course it's so directly connected with what you do. This so it's a, it's an a, Danny the Street is a, is a comic yeah. character who, yeah. who who is an inanimate character, who is a building, well, an animate building, right? Yes. So Danny the Street was created by uh, Richard Case and Grant Morrison for a comic book called the Doom Patrol by DC Comics, and it's a character that uh, it's a sentient street that can. Uh, 
uh, exist only by the shops, shop window that he transforms. And he basically, his whole presence is about like the, uh, the, the way you look at the street, you know. And uh, so he goes like that. Uh, it's a piece of geography, so to speak, you know, that moves from one street to another and change the street, you know, entirely. So it's quite festive and speaks through the, the banners to whatever, you know, and um, quite fascinating uh, uh, character. So, uh, and I think he comes from a, a famous British uh, comedian called Danny Larue. Uh, yeah. yeah, for the transvestite. Uh, so Daniel Larue is the street. It's also a transvestite sentient street. I met Grant Morrison years ago for a show I that created in uh, Dublin, and we had a conversation about Danny, and he kept to my mind. And when I did the Palais de Tokyo show, I named uh, one of the space after Danny the street. So and it became for me a quite beautiful way to think about an exhibition. You know, a sentient kind of piece of geography. Right, so, and, and the work that you're doing is at Luma in Arles. Yeah. It's called Danny the Street. So yeah. tell us what it consists of. It's called Danny, but it's, uh, it's an homage of Danny the Street. And it's a uh, space, it's one space within another. So you have the, the proper architectural space, which is called Danny, and you have a video screen and a couple of other elements in it. You know, and that thing that live, you know, do what uh, they do as an exhibition space, and they, they live together them. So it's talk to each other, all these different objects or elements present in it. And then you have from time to time a film, which is screen. So that's another space. It's a space where it's like an hour and a an half. And in that, in that film, basically, it's a montage of all the films that I did. So it's another exhibition space, which is this time totally digitic, where all these films are merged together to produce another narrative. And uh, based, it's not chronological, and it's, uh, it's basically uh, following up an idea of uh, going through different characters, uh, which I will then determine sometime or determine when talks about Marilyn Monroe, it's clearly her, but otherwise it's sort of like subjects that are there floating within that, you know, hour and a half of the film. A subject that is uh, sometimes present really clearly, sometimes more evanescent, but then... After a while, and because of the sound, the way I treated the sound, you understand that it's the subject are in a way uh, it's not in the screen, but with you looking at itself, you know. So it's uh, it's all about sort of like this relationship between what happened, like you know, we did for example with Pierre Huet, uh, the little manga character, you know, when the, what happened to be in the screen comes into the real space and start to share a moment with you. So it was supposed to be an object start to become now a subject looking at itself and reflecting itself, which is a bit what we are also doing. So we share the same time with the thing that you see here. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Um, cinemas, theatres. <laughs> I spend a lot of time at MoMA, for example, doing the last work I did, so I did spend more mm. time. I spent a lot of time in Philadelphia when I did Dancing Around the Bride. To, to do an exhibition takes time, so I, I spend time doing it. But I don't have a space where I go like, you know, regularly. You know? I go really to the space where I work. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Books, I think. 
lot of books. <laughs> and we're going to come on to books. Okay. In, in a minute, actually. But actually, I wanted to, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to propose something which I okay. think from, from what I've read about your work may have changed your view of the world. And, and it's the exhibition called Les Anmatérieux at, at the Pompidou in 1985. Yeah. So Jean, yeah. Jean-François Lyotard was one of the two curators. Yeah. Yeah. Did it change your view of the world? To what, ex- what was its effect on you? Yeah, absolutely. But I was already kind of like, you know, interested by visual art and so like uh, tried to, to do something with it. But it's a definitely a show that, uh, well, I was not really certain that it will end up being a visual artist. But uh, I was interested by the fact that uh, you could actually produce some form of uh, content without really having to uh, show some paintings on the wall, you know. <laughs> it was a textbook to me. And I found it fascinating to be able to, uh, at the time, I think, to write in three dimensions, in fact, much more than three. But there was a, a relationship, of course, between uh, some visual art object, but also a relationship between the smell and the light. And to enter into, a, as Lyotard said, a new zone of sensitivity, you know, it's interesting yeah. to say, to say it was not only a, a display of object, but a pure, as you said, a, a phenomenologic experience, you know, something to try to experience some uh, and uh, classified, you know, yeah. experience, something which was going on at the time and we couldn't really put a word on it, you know. So I found it quite fascinating, yeah. He was quite explicit that he wanted, and he actually said this, he wanted to create unease in the viewer. And I think the idea of creating an exhibition in which one wants to create unease, it seems mm-hmm. to me, is quite a radical idea. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and you know, whether or not you liked some of the texts, also it was uh, the, the part from the material was really close to his inhuman text, that he was, uh, mm-hmm. which was, you know, amazing text of philosophy. But uh, it, was, uh, it was also uh, non-linear, you know, so... Uh, which was also quite in, uh, stunning, you know, that you will uh, take it from where you want to take it and then build your own kind of like uh, set of ideas out of it. It was quite open in a way. The, the entire yeah. thing was quite open. And that, and of course, of course it then, if you push that, uh, the fantastic set of uh, text that was produced by, uh, in fact, a common text that was produced by, uh, from Derrida to whoever you know, was part of it, uh, where he asked different collaborators to... Uh, to uh, produce sort of like intranet system, you know, so IBM delivered to uh, all of its participants a computer and people were actually uh, discussing together online, you know. It was sort of like a, a first kind of like book that was produced by a collective of people in real time. And um, that also was quite fascinating. So, yeah, it was a, it was a lot of things to say about it, yeah. And mm-hmm. we, we talked recently a lot with uh, that because there was this idea to try maybe to do something, uh, a part two, or, you know, to imagine a part two. It would be interesting to do a, an exhibition created by a dead creator. <laughs> um, let's talk about literature then. Which writers or poets do you return to? No, I read a lot. And the, the last text that I read called Famaco AI, it's a book by uh, Kenrick McDowell. And it's a book written by a human and an AI. It's a GPT-3, I think, uh, uh, AI kind of like system and uh, predictive uh, generative language system. And I found it quite stunning, you know, sort of like totally cyberpunk, cyberpunk manifestation, you know, rather than uh, imagination. I've been reading a lot of the Ted Chiang books, which I found it fascinating. Exhalation is a beautiful novel. A short novel, beautiful. It's all about this uh, creature that all, uh, try to analyze its own consciousness. And at the end, you understand that uh, the fact that the, that the creature uh, will survive its extension precisely because you are reading the book, you know, which I found it really beautiful. 
and uh, the end and the entire setup of the text beautiful so uh, the Jeff Mandiamir also the trench bird which is also a short novel which is also beautiful but the book where I return to the most I'm not sure if I return to books really if I reread part of it I say well it's not in the book really so like, it was in my mind you know so <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about one piece which connects to literature and it's it was one of the most profound pieces I've seen by you and it was so easily missed if you didn't know it was there mm-hmm. and it was a piece you did for the Lorca house oh yeah it was basically like breath on a mm-hmm. window mm-hmm. and it was so evocative of of Lorca's experience that the in the interior of that space yeah. but also how deeply political and threatening his poetry and plays were to an authoritarian regime. Oh, you saw like, that? Fantastic. Yeah, that was, it was such a beautiful piece. I would, can, can you say something about that? And, and how much did you have to inhabit Lorca's world, in a way, in order to think that that was the right way to, to kind of negotiate that such a rich vein of poetry and, and, and language? Yeah, and kind that. of like I asked question to the to about the house and the way uh, Lorca uh, for a visit that I had in the house. And I uh, can't remember now, it was on down the staircase, you know, that was yes, a it little was, window. Yeah. He simply say, look, and then he was spending time, or that's where the people came to to take him, whatever. I can't remember mm-hmm. somebody. So yes. he came from the little conversation I had, you know, visiting the house. And I put the breath at the level of uh, of his height, which was me. It was a, a, a short, shorter than me. So, um, but it was really uh, out of the conversation that we had. And it's just such a touching and and as I say, sort of it almost isn't there, but it's it's so potent when you when you witness it. Yeah. Um. You talked about science fiction. I mean, I was wondering about you know, and one of the things that occurs to me is that both you and Dominique have been talking about science fiction long before. It's it's now become a, a very very common thing for artists mm-hmm. to talk about science fiction mm-hmm. in, in the 80s and, and and the early 90s it wasn't such a common thing for artists to be to be dwelling on no i mean for me uh, science fiction actually through uh, the cyberpunk uh sterling seven son of his guys because it was uh, they were a bit younger uh, older than us but nevertheless they were they were dealing with technology in a way that you know say okay first of all they were really imagining the future you know <laughs> And in fact, if you go back to the text, some of the stuff I saw kind of like unbelievable predictive, you know, to what we're going through now, mm. which was really stunning. And I took that prediction, you know, or prophecy. So that was a fascination. The fact also that punk, because there was this idea that technology, if the technology goes to the hand of the wrong users, then you can produce another, a better world, you know. And that was still something which I think interesting to discuss, you know. So, um, yeah, it was something that at the same time was a... Uh, producing a lot of uh, and beautiful uh, forms in my head or in our head, but also great ideas, you know, and uh, the, the, the conjunction of both. And the fact that indeed with a uh, lot of time waiting, which was a, a big part of my time at the art school. <laughs> Let's talk about music. What music or other audio do you listen to as you work? I'm working right now with Marko Nikojovic, which is a beautiful, fantastic composer, Serbian composer. So I've been listening to a lot of, uh, of course, his stuff, but also uh, things related like spectral music or stuff which are in that kind of like realm. It's again, uh, for me, uh, I listen to the stuff that I'm working with at the time when I'm working on a project. And I'm working on this Fantasmagoria project with Marco. So, I, yeah, so I listen to strange stuff like that. I mean, strange. This is Marco is not strange stuff, but like trying to to look at stuff which are a bit like you know that I didn't really pay attention to before. 
I wanted to ask you about the piece where, which is a very personal piece actually for you, which is called Credits or Credit, mm-hmm. where you managed to convince Angus Young of ACDC to mm-hmm. imagine himself effectively be you playing Angus Young yeah. in your bedroom yeah. when in, on the housing estate in yeah. which you grew up. Can you yeah. say, say more about that? Yeah. In fact, he was not really playing much. He was just like going like ring, ring, but, uh, which is exactly <laughs> what I was... Because uh, I was not supposed to have any... Uh, ACDC stuff because I didn't have the, you know, cannot pay or afford to do anything. So basically, and it was fine because, it, as you said, it was all the idea of trying to say, okay, it was a credit, was the idea, it was a film. Uh, the first time I did a film in 35 millimeter, and it was the, it was the idea to rebuild uh, from memory landscape of the housing estate where I grew up with. So I went back to the space and uh, or trying to find some people I used to hang out with, but also to find to find some political, uh, some politicians at the time, you know, and try to understand what was the uh, the politics, you know, of the urban plan there. So, um, from some books, but also from some interviews I did, and I came out with that uh, reconstruction, sort of like reenactment or reconstruction of this urban landscape, but produced from the different memories of the politician, but also from the people I used to play with. And he came out with something which is not historical, right? <laughs> but the projection of a fantasy, you know, since it's a combination of all these different subjective point of views. So it was one kind of like shot, you know, uh, where the light changed and uh, a bit like when you daydream looking through your windows, mm. the window of your apartment, and then the time changed at night and day. So I worked, was working on that film, and then I saw in was I was looking through my window, which was not exactly the same landscape, but going looking through. But nevertheless, was the idea I was pretending to be Angus Young, so you know, airplane. And uh, <laughs> so I thought it would be interesting to try. And by chance, I had a, a, a friend at the time that was a, rec- a recording artist who was uh, with him or whatever. So I I, uh, I I came to explain the project. And while I was uh, talking to him about the project, he was uh, playing. You know, doing some stuff, you know. I said, but you don't need to do anything. You just can use what you've just been doing. That's it, you know. And uh, <laughs> so I went like that. It was funny, yeah. Um, it, recently in a show in the Saralvas Museum in mm-hmm. Porto, you used an AI playing a score by Shostakovich, the, the fugue number 24 in D minor, as the kind of score to dictate what happened in the show, the different elements of that show. I was wondering why you chose that particular piece of music. Yeah, it was done because it, I was interested by the fugue, you know, as a, as a form. And, um, and the idea of the show, we had, I think, I uh, can't remember the amount of space that was in Serralves, but uh, the amount of space was related to the amount of movement that we had in the fugue of... Uh, of uh, so... And the idea was to say, okay, each of these movements is one room. And at the end, we end up in a theater where we had a AI uh, try to iterate and to, and to produce the 18th of a movement of the, of the fugue. So that was the idea by, basically, it was a decision taken by uh, the pianist, uh, Mike uh, Misha, and, uh, and me of trying to find a fugue that could match the, the, the museum, yeah. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? I can't, I can't spend a day without reading a page of a book. <laughs> so I guess that's a, a, a ritual, you know. Every day I'm desperate to find some kind of something that can't, you know, I need to hang on something in a way, you know, in yeah. a desperate type of way. <laughs> and so, <laughs> this, so it's always like, you know, when the, I need to find, and I need to find it within 
the work I'm, I'm, I'm doing, but most of the time come from something else. So I'm a bit like, you know, I'm going around kind of like neurotically until I find something that put me at rest for the night. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really peaceful experience. <laughs> um, if you could live with one work of art, what would it be? It would be a book. I can't remember to tell you what, because then, yeah, we'd be more free. A science fiction book would be great. A big, long science fiction series. <laughs> Something like six volumes of Hyperon would be great, you know. <laughs> and lastly, what's art for? That was a beautiful line. So beautiful because it's not mine. So <laughs> it's a line by uh, Robert Filio who says, Art is what makes life more interesting than art, which I think is hard to beat that one. Yeah, it's a beautiful line. <laughs> Philippe, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> Philippe Pereno's Goya is at the Bayla Foundation in Rien near Basel from the 10th of October until the 23rd of January 2022. And you can see Danny No More Reality now at Luma in Arles in France. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Judy Mihalska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla and huge thanks to Philippe Pereno and Gillian McVeigh. See you next week. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.